So I'm going to ask you to go far back in time, all the way back to that distant year, 2011. <laughs> and there was this hip, popular pastor named Rob Bell who stirred up this whole controversy with the publication of that book called Love Wins. And uh, the book essentially represents a departure from historic Christian interpretation of the doctrine of hell. And basically what Rob Bell does is he says a bunch of stuff without saying much. Uh, he presents different interpretations of the doctrine of hell without explicitly staking his claim. So basically he just says, here are all the alternatives. And he doesn't necessarily uh, say where he lands, but it's obvious which view he's favorable to. And so one of those views that it's obvious he's favorable to is called universal reconciliation. And he explains how that view would say that hell is not eternal. Um, it's not eternal conscious punishment or torment, but that God's purposes, God's redemptive purposes and love will prevail in the end, even over hell itself. And so every sinner in this life or in the next will eventually be reconciled to God. Uh, God is not a God of wrath. God is a God of love. And so it's important to emphasize what Bell argues in that book is nothing new. He wasn't the first person to suggest uh, those alternatives. There have been people throughout church history who have espoused those views, uh, but they've always remained outside the mainstream. And... Uh, They've never represented the consensus of the church's interpretation of this doctrine. Uh, Bell simply caused controversy because he was a fairly prominent figure in evangelicalism. He had all those evangelical credentials. He, was, he went to Wheaton College, uh, Fuller Theological Seminary. He was the pastor of a megachurch. Uh, prior to publishing this book, uh, he obviously struck a nerve with young evangelicals. He produced these short film videos called NUMA, and uh, he presented an evangelical message that was cool, sleek, culturally relevant. Uh, and what he was interested in doing was basically reframing and reconceptualizing traditional Christian teaching. So that's what his book Velvet Elvis is all about. And really, that's exactly what he does with Love Wins, is he reconceptualizes the traditional understanding. <coughs> and what he's doing is he's leaving room for uncertainty. So he wants to present this alternative doctrine of hell, um, and he suggests that if you land on something firm, having a firm conviction about this is misguided. Uh, he thinks that uncertainty is a virtue. And that's something we'll discuss next week more in detail when we talk about faith and doubt and this uh, phenomenon in evangelical circles known as deconstruction. So Bell serves as a good representative of that. Uh, he is deconstructing or taking apart conventional doctrines, and he's avoiding dogmatic certainty. So again, open-mindedness is this virtue for him. And to paraphrase Chesterton, he says, the purpose of an open mind is like an open mouth. It's supposed to close on something solid. So today, 
I don't even really know what Bell believes. Uh, he espouses views that aren't even within the bounds of any articulation of Orthodox Christianity. Now, in direct response to Bell's book, uh, Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle published a book called Erasing Hell. And what they seek to do is to hold on to the traditional understanding of the doctrine, but really they wanted to provide a corrective to some of the reactionary responses that Bell's book generated. So the problem is when somebody like Bell publishes a book and says God is loving and he hopes for universal reconciliation, uh, the knee-jerk evangelical reaction is to respond, no, there is such a thing as hell. And uh, that easily plays into the cultural caricature of evangelicals being fire and brimstone and gleeful at the prospect of eternal suffering. So Chan and Sprinkle, they seek to avoid that. So they want to uphold the traditional understanding, but they want to do so with sober-mindedness. So they want to remind us that this is a doctrine that ought to break our hearts. And this is a doctrine that should break our hearts for the lost and propel us toward evangelism. So those two books are kind of at the popular level, um, but this debate happens at the scholarly level as well. You could set up the same contrast with these two books, uh, That All Shall Be Saved by David Bentley Hart and The Devil's Redemption by Michael McClymont. So David Bentley Hart is an Eastern Orthodox scholar, and he argues in favor of the doctrine of universal reconciliation. You can see it in his title, that all shall be saved. So with one fell swoop, uh, he's declaring the argument over. It's settled. And uh, Hart is a fool. <laughs> I don't have a problem saying that about Hart because uh, really he's the opposite of what a theologian should be. Uh, he is arrogant, he's combative, he's elitist, he thinks he's the smartest person in the room. In fact, he might be, um, but he's an intellectual bully. So anybody who's written a negative review of his book, he responds with ad hominem attacks, and he calls them inferior scholars. So that's what he did to Michael McClymont. He wrote a, re a review about McClymont's book, and he said he's not a real scholar. So here's a quote from Hart's review. He says, this is not scholarship. This is tinfoil hat-wearing conspiracy theory of the most cartoonish kind. And he calls it a disaster of a book. Uh, and so Hart's book is 214 pages. There's no footnotes. And it relies heavily on his own translation of the New Testament. McClyman's book is... Uh, it's a book on the historical development of Christian universalism. So McClyman is not arguing in support of it, he's just outlining its development. McClyman's book is two volumes, it's 1,300 pages long, it has some 3,000 sources, but remember, he's not a real scholar. <laughs> so McClyman actually wrote a very thoughtful and charitable review of Hart's book. Um, and so one of the ironies behind Hart's behavior is that in defending this loving doctrine of universal reconciliation, he's engaging in uncompassionate, uh, uncharitable, unkind behavior. So much for love and compassion. So anyway, that fight 
uh, got really heated between them two. Uh, but my point is not to rehash all the details there, but it's just to highlight the reality that at both the popular level, the Rob Bells and scholars, the David Bentley Hearts, they fight over this doctrine of hell, and it's not new, and it's not going away. However much those like Hart and Bell seem to suggest that the argument's over. So what's our response to all this? What, how are we going to respond to this debate? And I think we need to take the path of wisdom. So it's very easy to get sucked into the whirlwind of the debate. It can be kind of fun. Uh, but that's where I think the impulse behind Francis Chan and Sprinkle's book is helpful. We can uphold the traditional view on, on this doctrine, but we should never approach this as an armchair theologian. This is very personal and real, and this is a doctrine that ought to break our hearts for the lost. And so here, I think C.S. Lewis is actually very helpful, and I want to share a quote from a sermon that he gave called Learning in Wartime. And at one point, he mentions the word hell, and then he says, you must forgive the crude monosyllable, I know that many wiser and better Christians than I these days don't like to mention heaven and hell, even in a pulpit. I know, too, that nearly all the references to this subject in the New Testament come from a single source, but then that source is our Lord himself. People will tell you it is St. Paul, but that is untrue. These overwhelming doctrines are minimal. They are not really removable from the teaching of Christ or of his church. If we do not believe them, our presence in this church is great tomfoolery. So I love Lewis's realism here. And it takes us back to Terry's question a few weeks ago. What is real? What is true? If we don't believe that these doctrines are real, then what is all this for? What are we doing? This is all just play acting. So this afternoon, I want to give us a, a biblical presentation of the doctrine of heaven and hell. And I'm going to focus on the theology of it. But don't think that I'm focusing on the theology or doctrine that this is not a personal or an emotional issue. There are many helpful apologetic resources that help us deal with the emotional side of this question. Uh, C.S. Lewis's chapter on hell and the problem of pain is good. Uh, it helps us see that the, the doctrine itself is not immoral. Now, I would have some theological uh, disagreements with Lewis on his doctrine of hell, but I think he's very good at the emotional side of the argument. And then, likewise, Rebecca McLaughlin's chapter on hell in confronting Christianity is also helpful with the emotional side of this question. How could a loving God send people to hell? And I think you need both the theological and apologetic answers. So Lewis and Rebecca McLaughlin are good in supplying apologetic answers, but really they don't go much into much depth about the theological doctrine that undergirds their answers. And that's not a fault against them, that's just not the purpose of their essays. But here's why we need a theological uh, foundation to this answer, or to this question. If we're confronted with the emotional question, but we don't have a good foundation 
or understanding of the traditional doctrine and what the traditional doctrine even entails, then we're going to be far more easily swayed by alternative or insufficient answers that are supplied in response to those questions. So what I'm going to do is give you the traditional interpretation of hell and then help you see how the alternative interpretations of the doctrine are insufficient or flawed. So to guide us, I want to use a line from the Nicene Creed to serve as an outline. So one of the lines toward the end of the creed said, talking about Jesus' second coming, says, He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So the return of Christ will be accompanied by the final judgment. And the New Testament word for judgment, and I love this, is crisis. So we love to talk about various crises today. But the ultimate crisis is the final judgment, when Christ shall come to put the world to rights, as N.T. Wright likes to say. So we modern people don't like to think about Jesus and judgment. We like the nice Jesus. But even that's a false dichotomy. So we say things like the angry God of the Old Testament and the loving God of the New Testament. And we see justice, especially retributive justice and love, as separate. But we can't view God's attributes as compartmentalized or existing in isolation from each other. So God is perfectly just, loving, compassionate, gracious, powerful, truthful. You can't divorce any of those attributes from each other. You can't divorce love from truth. You can't divorce goodness from justice. So goodness that is not just is no longer goodness. So Diane Langberg is a Christian psychologist who says sometimes the most grace-filled thing we can do is restriction. So think of God's commands. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Langberg would say, those are full of grace, even though they're restrictions. And she says, that's what we do when we tell children they can't play in the street. It's a restriction, but the motivation behind it is full of grace. And so that's what we have to do when we think about God's attributes, his justice and his love and his mercy. We can't separate them or compartmentalize them. And so, for example, you see... The perfection of God's attributes when God reveals his nature to Moses in Exodus 34. God says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So that's the so-called angry God of the Old Testament. And there you see his attributes in perfect harmony. He is merciful, gracious. He has steadfast love. He's forgiving. And he is just. He will by no means clear the guilty. So, Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And though ultimately God's justice is a good thing, uh, Psalm 98 speaks about God's justice as a joyous occasion. It says the trees will clap their hands and the earth will sing for joy when the Lord comes to judge the earth. 
So even though justice is a, a joyous occasion, there is a dark side to that judgment. And we would understand that to be the doctrine of hell. It's a place of everlasting punishment. It's the place where Satan and demons will be cast into the lake of fire. It is a state and place where unbelievers will experience God's wrath poured out in its fullness. And the wicked will experience condemnation as conscious torment in hell forever. So what's the scriptural basis for belief in hell? The word Jesus uses repeatedly to talk about the final judgment and the punishment of the wicked is Gehenna. And it refers to the Valley of Hinnom, which is outside of Jerusalem. And so if you read 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and Jeremiah, this valley is the place where Israel adopted the practices of its pagan neighbors. And they burned incense to these false gods, and they slaughtered the innocent there. So it was the place of worship for this false god known as Molech, to whom their children were slaughtered and burned as offerings. And so the place uh, was eventually destroyed by King Josiah, and it was declared unclean. And so the name of the valley is very clearly associated with God's wrath and his judgment. And so it becomes known as the place where people would be consigned to suffer God's punishment through everlasting fire. So that's the term that Jesus has uh, that's the background in people's minds when Jesus uses the term Gehenna. And so there are numerous places throughout the New Testament that speak of Gehenna in the final judgment. A place of everlasting torment, a place of unquenchable fire, a place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that's not an exhaustive list, uh, but those are just various passages that speak about the final judgment and I would just highlight uh, Matthew 25, where Jesus speaks about the final judgment. And he uses the language of separating the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the wicked. And so here's what Jesus says in Matthew 25. On the, with the righteous and the wicked in mind, he says, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so what you have there is a, what's called a parallelism. So the wicked suffer eternally in hell. The righteous enjoy God's presence eternally in heaven. So eternal punishment, eternal life. And so that's, that's just a brief overview of the doctrine. Um, but there are two main challenges today regarding the traditional interpretation of hell. And they are universalism and what's called annihilationism, or conditional immortality. So those are some clunky words, but we'll define them. Um, basically, there is widespread consensus in the church on the doctrine of hell, as I outlined, until about the 19th century. Now, there were always people outside the mainstream who had diverging views on hell, but those views were never considered mainstream. It's not until the 19th century that you begin to see more divergent views, and the midpoint of the 20th century 
you see widespread abandonment of the belief in hell as eternal punishment uh, for more tolerable options like universalism or annihilationism. So why is that? And that's a really hard question to answer. But I think it's notable that the abandonment of this doctrine happens at the same time that theology begins to take a modern, or modern theology begins to take a subjective turn. So much modern theology is man-centered, uh, focusing on questions about human existence. Um, and so I think that's a factor, even though I don't have a full answer as to why. But let's define these two views, universalism and annihilationism. So we'll do annihilationism first. Annihilationism is the view that the wicked in hell will not be punished eternally, but their punishment will actually result in the annihilation of their existence. So they will cease to exist at some point. And basically this view sees eternal punishment as unjust. So phrases in the New Testament, they would say, that speak of eternal destruction or eternal punishment don't mean eternal in the sense of duration, but in the sense of uh, complete destruction. So they would say that uh, the word typically translated as eternal can have various meanings, and it doesn't always indicate endless duration. Instead, they would interpret it to mean age or a period of time. So for the annihilationist, Hell is not eternal punishment, but it's only punishment for X number of years. And so annihilationism goes hand in hand with what's called conditional immortality. And that is the view that says believers will exist forever in heaven, uh, but unbelievers will cease to exist. They have a conditional immortality. And the reason is they're annihilated. So the, the two ideas go hand in hand. Um, but one of the big problems with annihilationists' interpretation of the word eternal is that it proves to be selective. So if you take Matthew 25, uh, where Jesus talks about the righteous experiencing eternal life and the wicked eternal punishment, essentially, when eternal is applied to the wicked in that sentence, they would say it means period of time. But when it's applied to the righteous, they would say it means forever, in the sense of endless duration. So they would believe in this eternal hell, but a temporary hell. But the problem is no annihilationist is going to try to say that heaven only exists for a period of time. It, they only apply it selectively to hell. And so the interpretation is inconsistent, and it doesn't hold up, especially when the word is used in the exact same sentence. So it's very unlikely that Jesus meant completely different things with the same word. So it's selectively applied. Now, annihilationists take up that argument because they think it's unjust that somebody should suffer eternally. Why not just 10 years? Uh, but Herman Bobbing is helpful here, and uh, he suggests that if you think eternal punishment is incompatible with God's justice, 
then so is temporal punishment. Because logically, it's the same thing. Um, but today, we even see people who think temporal punishment is bad. So we, we focus on restorative justice. Modern people don't like the idea of retributive justice. And I think that this reveals that uh, this strong aversion toward the traditional doctrine of hell is a uniquely modern problem. So I don't mean to suggest that ancient Christians or Christians can't be uncomfortable with the idea of hell. But I think that it shows us that the traditional doctrine of hell is not incompatible with God's justice or God's love, but it's incompatible with our modern values. So if something is deeply offensive to us, what modern value system is what modern value system is the Christian worldview challenging? So what cultural assumptions do we bring to this discussion? So what's an example of a modern value shaping the worldview here? Um, Some people might say, well, humans are by nature good, or they have a low view of sin, or no view of sin. The outright denial of the existence of sin or total depravity. So if humans are intrinsically good, well, then of course the doctrine of hell would be unjust. And so the Bible would teach us that though God created us in his image and said, it is very good, all of us are intrinsically valuable as divine image bearers, we would say, and yet, um, that image is broken or distorted because of sin. And so, we have to take sin seriously. Sin is not mere weakness or lack. It's not a minor imperfection in human possibilities. Uh, the intrinsic nature of sin is rebellion and hostility against God. So even though sin can be committed in a moment, the intrinsic nature of it is infinite, eternal, because by its very nature, it is rebellion against the eternal majesty and holiness of God. So what about the other challenge to the traditional doctrine? Universalism. So there are uh, various types of universalism, some Christian, some not. Uh, but the basic idea is that all people will be saved. And they would say, if not in this life, then they would have a chance to repent or be reconciled in the next. So non-Christian types of universalism would articulate that there are many paths to the same God, that kind of Phrasing. Christian universalism would say that all people are reconciled through Christ. So God's love is inclusive and will eventually envelop all things. And so a Christian universalist might point to Colossians 1.20 in support of their view where Paul says, and through Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So they take very seriously God's reconciliation of 
all things. And some universalists take all things to mean all things. So hence, uh, McClyman's title of his book, The Devil's Redemption. So again, McClyman is not in support of that view, but he's uh, just outlining its development. But as he says, some would say that the, de the devil and demons themselves will be reconciled to God. So I don't think Colossians is supporting or suggesting that demons or the devil himself will be reconciled to God. I think Paul is speaking about the universal scope of God's salvation. God's saving work is for all peoples. So for many universalists, uh, if they believe in hell, they would view hell as uh, purgative, in the sense of purgatory. So a place where you go to repent of your sins, where eventually you're purged and cleansed and purified of your sin. The problem is uh, purgatory doesn't have biblical support. And this is something uh, even Catholics um, will mention and acknowledge. Uh, Pope Benedict even acknowledged the lack of biblical support for the doctrine. He relies on um, the tradition of the Catholic teaching there. But purgatory would be in direct conflict with our understanding of salvation through grace alone. So essentially, purgatory is a second chance doctrine. It offers the possibility of a post-mortem salvation, um, post-mortem repentance. They believe, I guess Catholics really would say, people in purgatory are saved. They just have to um, cleanse themselves of their sin until they can get into heaven. But Hebrews 9.27 would speak of death as the point at which your eternal destiny is fixed. So it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So another popular theme in Christian universalism is the idea of God's overcoming power of grace and love. So God's love will overcome evil. And so essentially, universalism is their attempt to answer the question of the problem of evil. So why does evil exist? And they would say, well, eventually God's love will eradicate evil by reconciling all things to God. And so one Catholic uh, theologian, Hans von Balthasar, calls his view hopeful universalism. And Balthazar does the old Rob Bell trick of saying something without really saying anything. And so he doesn't come right out and say that he's a universalist, because today that's not Catholic teaching. Um, but his book is called Dare We Hope That All Men Are Saved? And so his strategy is very skillful, uh, because even that sounds like a good thing. You know, what's, what's wrong with hoping that all people will be saved? Doesn't God desire that all people will be saved? And if you can't even dare to hope that all will be saved, well, then you're unloving or you're a killjoy. Um, I think Michael McClyman is helpful when he points out that Balthazar's conception of hope sounds more like wishful thinking 
which is not what the biblical conception or understanding of hope is. So the biblical view of hope is certain expectation. It's not wishful thinking. So here's what McClyman says. Christian hope is not mere wishfulness. Christian hope is not utopian. It's instead full of, it's instead a joyful and confident expectation for the future that's grounded on God's promise. When the Christian church embraces a message and an attitude of wishfulness, then the genuine, reliable, well-founded Christian hope will be progressively weakened and eventually lost. So, what are other problems with universalism? One would be universalism undermines free will and therefore human dignity. So this sounds very counterintuitive, but McClyman would suggest that the doctrine of hell actually underscores human significance. Why? Because an all-powerful God created humans with the capacity to reject him. So God respects our free will. And so as Lewis says, ultimately hell is God's way of saying uh, to the one who rejects him, thy will be done. Where Dallas Willard argues similarly when he says God did not create hell because he's mad, because he wants to see people suffer, and he enjoys tormenting them for eternity. The only reason there is a hell is because God makes provision for what people want. And hell is simply the best God can do for some people. So Willard is getting at the notion of free will there and our capacity to reject God. So the doctrine of universal salvation would ignore free will. Grace is going to overpower you whether you want God or not. And that's going to make the new atheists like Richard Dawkins very unhappy. Uh, but McClyman's final chapter in his book is called The Eclipse of Grace. So these are the other problems with universalism, according to McClyman. He says, ultimately, it's an eclipse of grace. So he, he wants to demonstrate the consequences of universalism. So these are all the different ways that universalism undermines the idea of grace and salvation through grace alone. So I won't go into detail of all of those, but basically, universalist implications for salvation, some would say, well, I am saved because um, I am divine. I have the spark of the divine in me. I am saved because I suffer. I atone for my sins in purgatory. Or I am saved because God, by executive fiat, decides it. And then that trivializes any uh, moral, spiritual growth in pursuit of godliness. And each of those views undermines the logic of the gospel. So grace is not grace. Grace is entitlement. And I love uh, this quote from McClyman on evaluating universalism. He says, Universalism has undeniable curb appeal for the theological driver body. The universalist house, though, proves to be a not very livable place. 
The longer one looks at this house and examines the plumbing and wiring and the crawl space beneath, the less attractive it becomes. So how does one conclude a 1,300-page book defending the traditional understanding of hell? This would be the so what. What are we supposed to do? And McClyman would say, love your neighbor. McClyman writes, for the person engaged in love of neighbor, the speculative question of what will finally happen to all rational souls may prove to be distracting. So it gets in the way of you being faithful to love your neighbor and to go share the gospel. So McClyman calls his approach hope for each. So a hope for all, like Balthazar, is speculative. McClyman's is particular. It's focused on the realm of your control and your, your faithfulness to go love your neighbor. So that really is the best uh, application for the doctrine of hell. Go love your neighbor. Go share the gospel. Now, I haven't forgotten about heaven. I've spent the majority of the time talking about hell, and uh, I won't devote much time to speak about heaven, but I think that's okay. I, I was laughing when I was preparing for this because I, I pulled um, one of Herman Bobbing's volumes from his big systematic theologies off the shelf. Total, it's like 3,000 pages, and he devotes 16 pages to heaven and new creation. So it's like, well, I guess I'll be in good company. Um, but I think there's wisdom there. Um, there is um, a lot about heaven that we don't know, but there is, um, we can know some things. So here's another line from the Nicene Creed. It says, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So that's our hope. That's our future hope. That's what we're oriented toward. And we call it heaven, or new creation. Heaven is the fullness of God's glory. It's the state and place of believers who enjoy the full blessing and fellowship of God's presence. So Rebecca McLaughlin is good where she says heaven is not primarily a place, it's God's presence. It's the consummation of the great biblical promise that God will dwell with his people. And it'll be a place of fellowship. There's language of reunion in heaven. It's described as this marriage banquet of the Lamb. There will be no more sin, no more sickness and death. Creation will be as God intended it to be. And as, as that line in the Creed says, we look for the resurrection of the dead. Heaven is not disembodied. We're not floating souls. Uh, we will await the resurrection of our bodies. We will have a resurrected, glorified body. And the entire creation, this world, will be renewed and remade. So what's it going to be like? Well, I don't know. But I imagine it's going to be a lot like our present existence, only better without human abuse of power, interpersonal conflict, corruption. It's new creation. 
This is the new creation in which God establishes the fullness of his kingdom. And it will be glorious. It will be a place of worship, a place of knowing, loving, serving God. And so this side of heaven, uh, there's much that remains a mystery. As Paul says, now we see through a glass darkly, but we will see face to face. And when we behold him face to face, we will be like him and we'll worship him. And there, I think it's, it's best encapsulated in the words of the hymn, uh, I Stand Amazed, when we sing, When with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see. It will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. So it's a great hope. Um, I'll go ahead and uh, stop there, and we can open it up for questions. <clears throat>